And so, it's the new year. We've left 2020 behind, but its shadow remains as the virus continued through the bells and into 2021. We stayed at home for Hogmanay. We've still to stay at home this new year. and a new vaccine is rolled out to protect Scotland. Holyrood rejects consent for Boris Johnson's Brexit deal. And the multi-million pound fight for Scottish potato farmers. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Holyrood. We're all trying to stay safe. Me and Peter are going to stay in and play Scrabble. I usually beat him. He usually gets upset. But you know, that's 2020. Happy New Year, everybody. Matinva, Fiskama. Happy New Year, and welcome to the first edition of the programme for 2021. Brought to you as the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID vaccine is approved. 100 million doses are on order, and the rollout begins in Scotland on Monday. The Oxford vaccine can be stored in a standard fridge and it's easier to roll out to places such as care homes and GP surgeries. The first vaccine, the Pfizer-BioNTech jab, needs cold storage of around minus 70 Celsius. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon says the light at the end of the tunnel just got that bit brighter. But she adds her customary caution. We face difficult weeks this winter. We must stick with the restrictions. And be aware, they could get tighter before they're eased. It means that there are now two effective COVID vaccines available for use in the UK. The Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is logistically easier to deliver than the Pfizer one. And crucially, the UK has secured a much higher number of doses of this vaccine. It's also now recommended that the second dose of both vaccines can be given up to 12 weeks after the first rather than three. That means we can now prioritise providing a first dose to as many people as possible rather than providing the required two doses in as short a time as possible. And that will allow more people to be vaccinated more quickly. We have been preparing for the deployment of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine for some time and I can confirm that it will be administered in Scotland from Monday, uh, the 4th of January. As of Sunday, uh, more than 92,000 people had already received their first shot of the Pfizer vaccine, but today's news means that more people will get their first dose of a COVID vaccine much sooner than originally anticipated. The second issue I want to touch on uh, are the restrictions now in place across the country. On Boxing Day, Orkney, Shetland and the Western Isles and some other island communities moved to level three protections. However, at the same time, the rest of Scotland, which is, of course is the vast majority, moved to level four. That's not the way any of us wanted to end 2020 or indeed start the new year, but these new restrictions do reflect the severity of the threat that is posed by this new variant. Analysis done by Public Health Scotland shows that yesterday 42.8% of positive tests processed for Scotland in the Lighthouse Laboratory Network had the S gene dropout that is indicative of this new strain. 
That's higher than the 38% suggested by ONS analysis for the week beginning 14th December, and that in turn compared to just 6% at the end of November. So this new strain appears to be fast becoming the dominant one circulating in Scotland. And that is obviously a cause for real concern, given that it is thought to be significantly more transmissible. As I indicated before Christmas, the severity of this challenge means that we simply cannot rule out the need for restrictions that are even tighter than those in the current level four. We continue to assess the situation carefully, indeed on a daily basis, and we will keep Parliament updated should any changes uh, be required over the remainder of the festive period. As we learn more about the new variant, we also continue to review when pupils can safely return to classrooms. The new strain has already made a normal scheduled return impossible, but we continue to assess whether it will be possible to reopen schools as planned on the 18th of January. That is what I think we all want, and to be clear, that remains our planning assumption. But we will continue to put the safety of pupils, teachers and staff first. And of course, we will ensure as much notice as possible to parents of any changes we consider to be necessary. For now, of course, it is vital that we all do as much as possible to suppress transmission. That means limiting our interactions with people in other households beyond those which are absolutely essential. Uh, and to remind everyone, our very strong advice right now is that people should be staying at home uh, just as much as possible. Uh, and when we do go out, we should stay as close to home as possible. With a few limited exceptions for essential purposes, none of us should be visiting each other's homes right now. Uh, none of us should be travelling to other local authority areas, again, unless it is for an essential purpose. And there must be no non-essential travel between Scotland and other parts of the UK, and that advice also applies to overseas travel. So as this awful year draws to a close, let me again thank everyone across the country for your sacrifice and patience and for looking out for each other. We do have every reason to believe that the spring of 2021 will bring better times, but we must first get through these difficult few weeks of winter. So let's stick with it and keep looking after each other. And let me end by wishing everybody across the chamber and at home, when it comes, a better, brighter and happier new year. The two vaccines are undoubtedly good news as we shed 2020 and take on the mantle of a new year. We're nearing what we used to call normality, but we're not yet there. Let's meet the party leaders. First, Ruth Davidson, Conservative Group Leader at Holyrood. We will all welcome the news of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine being approved and look forward to Scotland's share of the 100 million doses which have already been purchased by the UK Government being delivered. But despite this positive development of a vaccine becoming available with fewer logistical challenges than the Pfizer one, people across Scotland will be concerned by the rising rates of transmission caused by the new variant of COVID and its advance to becoming the dominant strain here. That troubling news makes today's vaccine announcement so welcome and so timely. And people will want information. On the 23rd of December, a list of vaccination centres was published, which included hospitals, clinics and GP surgeries across Scotland, intended for use from January to vaccinate all over 80s not resident in care homes. We must be hopeful that this next phase of vaccination can be concluded as quickly as possible and that we can move on to wider cohorts of the population. 
That will almost certainly require a greater level of infrastructure than that which was announced. So can the First Minister update us on the work being undertaken to identify and secure venues for mass, mass vaccinations and when a list of these venues will be published? We also know that the national figure of trained vaccinators is at around 4,000 people. But obviously, every health board will need enough staff to deliver across their region. So can I ask the First Minister what confidence she has that each area has the staff that they need? And can she publish a breakdown of the numbers of trained vaccinators by health board? First Minister. Um, yes, we will look to publish updates on all of that uh, to Parliament uh, as soon as possible and then uh, on an ongoing uh, basis as regularly as possible. I have confidence both in uh, the, the centres and the, the infrastructure in terms of where uh, the vaccine will be delivered and also in our estimates of the numbers of people available uh, to do that. Uh, when I say of confidence, we take nothing for granted and there's not an ounce of complacency. I and uh, the Health Secretary are uh, receiving daily updates on uh, the progress of the vaccination programme, which is going well uh, so far, but we need to make sure that we can pick up the pace of that uh, to uh, meet the increased uh, supply that we are now likely to have with AstraZeneca uh, coming on stream, but also uh, the increased availability we will have because it is now not required to do two doses within a, a three-week period, and that will give us the ability uh, to vaccinate many more people much more quickly. Uh, we are still awaiting uh, certainty on the delivery schedules for Oxford AstraZeneca and therefore we will update as uh, quickly as we can on what our expectations then are for timescales. As well as vaccine centres, one of the advantages of the, the new vaccine is that because it is logistically easier, it is more able to be got to GP practices um, and that will allow us to uh, make sure that we speed up the vaccination uh, in the first instance of those over 80 who are not in care homes. Uh, so we take nothing for granted, uh, but we will get people vaccinated as quickly as possible and we will update uh, Parliament as regularly as we can about our expectations as the certainty of delivery and the knowledge we have about that uh, becomes more concrete, as I hope it will in the coming days. Years later. Labour leader Richard Leonard. We are at a critical moment in our response to the pandemic. The welcome approval of the Oxford vaccine announced today now means the challenge is to accelerate the vaccination programme and with urgency. But the recent increase in cases and the spread of the new strain demands clear and rigorous control measures in the meantime. As the First Minister has said, teachers and other school staff are due to return to work in a few days' time still without routine testing in place, without priority for vaccination, and still concerned about the January the 18th full return being safe. Parents will hear the First Minister's comments today and wonder if schools really will be able to return to face-to-face -to -face teaching after January the 18th. Many of them are worried about the implications of a return to home learning. So can the First Minister tell us more about how and when she will engage with school staff and parents to address these genuine concerns and can she be a bit clearer if there are to be changes to schools at what point would they be announced? First Minister. Uh, we do face um, a severe uh, situation given uh, the new strain, the fact that it is now becoming the dominant strain and it is a strain that spreads more quickly. That's why it was so important that we took the very uh, cautious and precautionary action. Um, it's not 
that long ago that Richard Leonard was urging me to reduce restrictions here in the city of Edinburgh, for example, yesterday, uh, the implication of an article he wrote appeared to be that we should open pubs again. It's really important that we don't follow that kind of advice, but we take really cautious and sensible action to try to make sure that we do not allow this virus to transmit uh, any uh, further and any more quickly than it already uh, is capable of doing. The decisions on schools are very, uh, very sensitive um, and very important uh, decisions for us to take. Uh, we have already, of course, uh, taken some of those decisions to delay the return of schools uh, for, for pupils to have the first week um, online uh, learning as opposed to in-school uh, learning. Uh, we want to see schools back uh, normally on the 18th of January, but over, literally over the next few days we will be assessing uh, the up-to-date situation. Um, and if there are changes to that, as I said in my statement, we will set those out as early as possible to give parents as much uh, notice of that as possible and obviously to give teachers as much notice of that as possible. Final two points. Uh, we are and we have been uh, already, and the Health Secretary has already shared some details of this working on plans uh, for uh, the greater use of testing uh, within schools once uh, the new term gets underway. And on vaccination, as I, I'm pretty sure Richard Leonard knows, uh, it's not politicians and governments that decide the order of priority for vaccination. We accept recommendations from the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation. These are the experts that tell us, based on what they know about the protections that the vaccines give, uh, what the correct order of priority is. And we'll continue to take those recommendations. And if they suggest a different order of priority, then we will reflect that in our planning. For the Scottish Greens, Patrick Harvey. The First Minister's statement says uh, that they will put the safety of pupils, teachers and staff first. Does this mean that they will place a higher priority on safety than on sticking rigidly with the pre-planned reopening dates? Because if we're putting safety first, then surely it's clear that schools shouldn't reopen until the virus is under control. And speaking of that pre-planned date, the First Minister says that the government continues to assess whether it would be possible. What metrics will be used as the basis for a decision on reopening? What additional safety measures have been identified which will be needed in schools to successfully address the risk posed by the new strain? Are these measures already being put in place or are schools themselves unclear what these measures will be? And in relation to the last point, the First Minister just uh, replied to Richard Leonard. What advice is the government receiving at the moment on whether teachers and school staff uh, should have prioritised access to the newly increased vaccine capacity. First Minister. Um, firstly, we've always put safety first uh, when it comes to schools and when it comes to the country more generally. Um, perfectly understandably, there will be differences of opinion um, in the case of schools between some teachers and the government about what putting safety first means. But safety has been and always will be the driving imperative. Part of the safety of children overall, of course, um, is having them as far as possible in full-time education, learning with their peers uh, as close to normal as, as possible. But we will not compromise on safety and uh, the, the figures around transmission uh, in schools, both for young people um, and looking at uh, I think this is from memory, ONS analysis, uh, COVID cases amongst teachers compared to other professions suggest that we have been able to have schools open safely. This new strain changes some of these assumptions because of its uh, faster uh, 
spreading nature, and we have to take that into account. So in terms of the metrics we look at, we look at the overall rate of community transmission. Right from the outset of this, we have been very clear uh, to say that, some of the, that one of the conditions for schools being open in normal is community transmission uh, that is under control. So that will be the, the judgment that we are making. But let me be very clear, uh, the safety of pupils, of teachers, of other staff in our schools uh, has always been paramount and always will be paramount. But part of what the rest of us have to do to try to make sure we have the conditions for schools being open is do all of these other things uh, to suppress the virus, which was uh, part of the point I was making to Richard Leonard. Uh, part of the reason why we have to have some places that adults enjoy going to closed right now is part of that broader uh, effort to suppress. Uh, on the advice around uh, vaccination, the JCVI advice is published. It, it has the, the phase one order of priority. Um, if the JCVI uh, changes that, obviously teachers will be in some of those uh, categories in terms of some people with, with health conditions. Uh, but if that changes, then we will reflect that in our planning. And of course, once we go into uh, the, the next phase, which is people under the age of 50, there will be advice then that we will consider on the order of priority around that. So we will continue to take advice uh, and act on the basis of that advice, because that is what the experts say is the most sensible approach, given what we know about this virus, uh, this vaccine and how it operates and uh, the protections that it delivers. Lib Dem leader, Willie Rennie. The First Minister talked about the NHS being under pressure. I have a letter dated the 21st of December from John Conachan, the Interim Chief Executive of NHS Scotland, and it states that boards can pause all non-urgent elective and routine services during January and February. Now, the waiting lists and times are already very long with people suffering pain and discomfort. So can the First Minister give us an indication as to how many boards she understands will be pausing all these services? Uh, that, that will uh, vary uh, depending on uh, the prevalence of the virus in different areas. We want that to be kept to a minimum. We want uh, health boards and the health service generally to get back to normal as much as possible. The remobilisation of services process has been underway. Obviously, there is a, also a need uh, to have greater infection prevention and control procedures in place during COVID, and therefore that will have, uh, continue to affect the numbers of patients being seen. Uh, but we are working with uh, health boards to try to uh, keep that process going while they also uh, deal with and treat and care for patients uh, with, with COVID. But that comes back to the central point. We will be more able to do that in every health board area and across the country as a whole if we get and keep uh, the levels of infection down. Um, our health service is working under extreme pressure. I want to take the opportunity again today to thank everybody uh, working in it. Uh, many of them will never have experienced pressure like this. Uh, right now, and this obviously is not something we can be complacent about, uh, our uh, bed uh, numbers of COVID patients in hospital beds and in ICU are below the peak we saw in April. Uh, ICU uh, particularly quite significantly below the peak. Hospital beds more generally uh, less so, but still below that peak. Uh, if we suppress this and keep it suppressed uh, or get it more suppressed, we can manage to continue that. And that then creates the space for us to open up and remobilise more of the services that uh, NHS boards want to be doing. Scotland's Rural Economy Secretary has pledged to do everything possible to reverse the damaging impact of the UK's trade deal with the EU for seed potato farmers. More than £15 million of business rests on restoring the EU export market for Scotland's quality seed potatoes. 
Fergus Ewing is calling on the UK government to ensure the product is included in the Brexit package. He's also asked the European Union to make a special case for Scotland to help support farmers across the country. It's a Brexit dilemma. The seed potato market is vital for Scotland and customers in Spain and Portugal. Farmers could export seed potatoes yesterday. Because of Brexit, they can't export the same quality potatoes today. Well, exactly. Um, You're absolutely right. It is arbitrary in that respect. And the concerns in in Europe are are for the future. Um, And therefore, I, I hope that we're able to persuade them that there is no factual basis. There's no agricultural basis. Uh, there's no rational basis, I think, for imposing a ban. Uh, the problem is politics and Brexit, and, and I very much hope that we can see sense prevail. Um, th- we have known about this for some time, and some farmers have already, if you like, um, dispatched seed potatoes to storage in mainland European locations in order, if you like, to get round the problem. But you see... There's no big Brexit barn in Brussels that we can store potatoes in. I mean, it's, it's not normal trade uh, that you would send them into intermediate storage in transit. I mean, special arrangements have been made, but that's only possible for a limited quantity. So one expects that very serious commercial problems will arise in the next few weeks. And that's why a, you know, I'm spending the, the time over the, the Christmas period in speaking with UK counterparts with industry leaders and uh, will be pressing home this in the next uh, the next few weeks and no doubt it will be raised in the, the Scottish Parliament and in Westminster as well, Charles, because it's, if you like, it's the most clear and demonstrable Brexit problem that has arisen right before, you know, before the transition period is even over and it's just undeniable for any Brexiteer that, that this problem has arisen simply because of Brexit. Um, so in that respect, it it's, uh, stands alone at the moment. Uh, and as long as it remains unsolved, it will be a constant embarrassment, I think, to the Prime Minister that here is one part of trade, a very important part of trade, um, that has been totally blocked by Brexit. It will be a constant daily embarrassment. Um, and more, more important than that, a very real problem for many hard-working Scottish farmers and those involved in the supply chain. You're listening to the New Year edition of The Week in Holyrood. I'm Charles Fletcher. Thanks for your company. Still to come in the next half hour, Holyrood rejects consent for Boris Johnson's Brexit. Plus, a New Year message from the actress, Jamie Godley. So we turn to the story that's been running for 40 years and more. It's been argued over for the past four years and the House of Commons took barely four hours to scrutinise it. We're talking, of course, Brexit. It's been approved in London, but the Scottish Parliament has refused consent for Boris Johnson's Brexit package. MSPs were recalled from the Christmas recess to debate the legislative measure of consent at Holyrood. They united to tell Boris Johnson they are dissatisfied with his Brexit deal and claim it's a disaster for Scotland's fishing and agriculture and not up to much across the whole economy. 
Members rejected the proposition with the exception of the Scottish Tories. They embraced it and said everybody else was wrong. Our coverage of the tale of two parliaments begins in Edinburgh with the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. Enjoy the debate. It's a sparky one. Brought to you from Caledonia Media for Scotland's Community Radio Network. Today the SNP and I hope Parliament will vote on principle. Uh, We will vote against a rotten Brexit that Scotland has rejected all along and we'll say no to a hard Brexit deal that damages our economy, our society and the opportunities of this and future generations. I'll say more on that shortly but first let me issue a challenge to Tory MSPs who say we should be backing this deal. If you support this deal then set out for us today, in clear and simple terms, what the benefits of it to Scotland actually are. And then tell us how it comes close, even close, to honouring Scotland's choices. Now, my prediction is that the Tories will do none of that today, because quite simply, they can't. Far from respecting Scotland's democratic wishes, this deal rides roughshod over them. And compared to EU membership, it has no benefits only massive downsides. And to the eternal shame of the Tories, it even betrays wholesale the promises made to Scotland's fishermen. So bereft bereft of any positive case, what we'll hear instead today is desperate diversionary nonsense. They'll say that we have to back this deal, not because it's any good, presiding officer, but because the alternative is worse. That, frankly, is an insult to Scotland's intelligence. It's legally suspect for a start, but more to the point, as we will see very shortly, this deal will pass regardless of how Scotland's MPs vote, because that's what the Westminster establishment has decided. The fact is, Scotland's voice has been ignored on Brexit all along, every single step of the way. But you know, the real disgrace of the Tory position is the notion that lies at the heart of it. That the best Scotland can ever hope for is a choice between a terrible outcome and an even worse outcome. Well, the bad news for them is that just like Brexit itself, that's a notion people in Scotland are increasingly rejecting. More and more people are realising that we can do better. We do not have to accept whatever dismal future Tories decide to foist upon us. We can choose our own future instead. It is time, Mr Rumbles, for Scotland to get the best possible deal, and that's a future as an independent European nation. Mike Rumbles. I believe, like the First Minister, that ending a political and economic union of some 48 years will be poorer for us in Scotland. But, well, it will be. It will be poorer for us. Do you not realise that? But does she not understand... Can the First Minister not see that the same argument she uses stands, the very same argument stand for ending a 300-year-old economic and political union? First Minister. The European Union is made up of independent nations. And the dismal liberal position is this. They know how damaging, how devastating Brexit is for Scotland, but they think we should just have to put up with it rather than choose a better future for ourselves. Well, we have no truck with that. Scotland can, should aspire to be an equal, independent country, and that is what Scotland is on the path to becoming. 
Presiding officer, 62% of people in Scotland voted to stay in the European Union. In not one but two subsequent UK general elections, pro-EU parties got an overwhelming majority of votes in Scotland. And these votes reflect the economic and practical benefits that EU membership has brought to our country. But they also reflect something more fundamental. People in Scotland, by and large, and for all its imperfections, support what the EU represents. Its fundamental principle that independent nations should share sovereignty for the common good is one that most people support. Its values, democracy, equality, solidarity, the rule of law, respect for human rights are ones we share. And throughout this whole Brexit process, we have all seen, and I suspect most people will long remember, the stark contrast between the EU's solidarity with Ireland and the UK government's utter contempt for Scotland and her people. The fact is, there is no Brexit settlement that would ever fulfil the wishes of people in Scotland. But there were outcomes that would have protected our interests better than this one. Back in December 2016, the Scottish Government published a plan for compromise. We recognised reluctantly that the UK would leave the EU, but proposed staying in the single market and customs union. It was the obvious compromise position, but the UK Government dismissed it out of hand. They disregarded Scotland's views, values and interests. And now they have agreed a deal that is disastrous for Scotland. A deal that puts barriers in the way of Scotland's exports. You know, the Tories are trumpeting, pun intended, the fact that this deal delivers zero tariffs. As if we're all meant to suddenly forget that there were already no tariffs. But now to avoid tariffs in the future, businesses will need to meet a whole host of complex regulatory requirements. The estimated cost of all of that to business in the UK is £7 billion every year. Service providers could now face different restrictions in each EU country. The finance sector, almost 10% of Scotland's economy, is still completely in the dark about what will replace the all-important passport. Ordinary people will pay a price even for simple family holidays. New health insurance requirements, roaming charges for mobile phones, more time-consuming queues at airports. There are consequences too for our justice system. Our police will no longer have real-time immediate access to alerts from EU partners on wanted or missing persons. And as well as making us less safe, this deal also makes us less free. The right to work, study and live across an entire continent is being taken away. And it will also be far more difficult for us to attract workers from other EU countries. One of our key challenges as a country, an ageing and potentially shrinking population, has just been made even worse. These costs, these harms, for that is what they are, are real, and they start taking effect in just two days' time. They will cost jobs and they will reduce prosperity in Scotland. And the benefits, well, um, perhaps I'll get some of the benefits in a moment. Dean Lockhart. Uh, well, from tomorrow, we'll be able to enter into free trade agreements with countries across the rest of the world. And over the past, over the past, over the past 15 years, the S&P has voted against every free trade agreement that it's voted on, including free trade agreements with Singapore, with Canada and Japan. So if you're so uh, concerned about free trade, why did the SNP vote against all of those free trade agreements? First Minister. None of these free trade agreements will make up 
for membership of the world's biggest single market that in two days' time we get ripped out of against our will. The member has just helpfully demonstrated that the benefits in return for all of this harm being imposed on us are pretty much non-existent. Even fishing. The one sector that did expect benefits from Brexit has been comprehensively let down. The Tory fishing promises were never deliverable. Many of us pointed that out, but they were made and the industry had a right to rely on them. Every single one of them have been broken. Douglas Ross, Alistair Jack, every Scottish Tory MP said in writing that the UK and Scotland must have complete control and full sovereignty over waters. They said that tying fisheries access to a trade deal was a red line that must not be crossed. If it was, they said, the UK would be leaving the common fisheries policy, I quote, in name only, and that in their words, not mine, that would be a betrayal of Scotland. Well, that betrayal is there for all to see in this deal. A long-term arrangement guaranteeing EU boats access to UK waters, access and quota shares included in the future economic partnership, access to waters not just tied to the overall trade deal, hardwired into it. Every single Tory promise to Scotland's fishermen broken, every Tory red line crossed. But you know, it's even worse than that. For no, I think it's better the Tories listen to the reality of their sellout of fishing. The key whitefish stocks that so much of the Scottish industry depends on, uh, for them there will be fewer, fewer fishing opportunities for Scotland under this deal than under the common fisheries policy. Presiding officer, this must be the worst negotiating outcome in history. A hard Brexit for Scotland and a comprehensive sellout of the Scottish fishing industry. That's why the verdicts of fishermen themselves are so damning. The National Federation of Fishermen's Organisations, fishing has been sacrificed. The Scottish White Fish Producers Association, deeply aggrieved. The Scottish Fishermen's Federation, the deal does not restore sovereign UK control over fisheries. The UK is, I quote them, now a coastal state with one hand tied behind our back. Utterly damning, but utterly justified. The fishing industry, misled by the Tories, sold out by the Tories all over again. Betrayed by the Tories on the way into the EU, betrayed by the Tories on the way out. And it's part, it's part of a pattern. Not that long ago, Ruth Davidson made it known that she would resign rather than support a differential deal for Northern Ireland. It's amazing what the offer of a place in the House of Lords can do to the merest whiff of a Ruth Davidson principle. Adam Tompkins, I'm not sure if he's here, went even further. No unionist, he said, could ever endorse any sort of differentiated deal for Northern Ireland, but that's what this deal yep. delivers. A hard Brexit for Scotland and a special single market deal for Northern Ireland. They're even dragging us out of Erasmus, a truly wonderful horizon-expanding scheme that gives young people opportunities to live and study across Europe. And again, the Tories here told us that wouldn't happen. Erasmus is something which all parties agree must continue post-Brexit. The words of Jackson Carlaw. But the UK government has now turned its back on Erasmus and sold out our young people as well. And Jackson Carlaw, not a peep. I can only assume that his ermine cloak is in the post. Presenting officer... What is now very clear is this. The Scottish Tories are ignored by their Westminster bosses 
just like Scotland as a whole is. But they lack the gumption or the self-respect to do anything about it. They are Boris Johnson's mouthpiece. They will abandon any principle, break any promise, sell out any sector if Westminster and Boris Johnson tell them to. Today is conclusive proof of that. By contrast and in conclusion, presiding officer, the SNP today will stick by our principles, by our values and by our beliefs. And most importantly, we will stick by the people of Scotland who have opposed Brexit at every turn. We will not play the Westminster game. We refuse to be complicit in a Boris Johnson imposed democratic, social and economic calamity for Scotland. The people of Scotland have been ignored throughout this whole fiasco. Our views disregarded, our Parliament treated with contempt. For Scotland, we now know beyond doubt that the Westminster system is broken beyond repair. We deserve better than a dismal choice between a terrible deal and no deal. We deserve the right to choose the best deal of all, a future as an independent European country. It is only through independence that we will ever get to choose the future we want. Independence, that is the deal that so many people in Scotland now do want, and we will have the right to choose it. Well, while it was voted through at Westminster, Conservative Group leader Ruth Davidson launched an astonishing attack on the First Minister in Edinburgh as she led her troops into the lonely lounge of supporting consent to Boris Johnson's deal. This week's vote is not about EU membership. The United Kingdom hasn't been a member of the EU since the 31st of January. We've already left and there's no going back. The only options on the table are the deal or no deal. And if you vote against the first one, then you're inescapably voting for the second one. And all but the dimmest and blindest SNP loyalists can see that. Presiding officer, in 10 years as an MSP, I don't think I've ever quoted Wings Over Scotland. And I'm not sure which one of us will be more surprised that I've done so now. But that is a pretty succinct summation of where we are. Because this isn't about overturning the referendum or refighting the arguments of the past or some mythical other deal that's just over the next hill. And the facts aren't dependent on which way you voted. Leave or remain, it is undisputedly true that we ceased to be a member of the European Union 11 months ago and a transition period was put in place that will end by law tomorrow. Those are the facts on the ground. They are the realities against which today's debate is taking place and they are the backdrop against which a legislative consent motion is being requested. They also provide the context within which the SNP's contortions over the last 48 hours need to be judged. Because they would have us all believe that this is a matter of principle for them, that they are only acting in Scotland's interest, but the truth is the exact opposite. They are acting in their own narrow nationalist self-interest by voting today, by voting today against the very thing that they have spent months demanding to be delivered, an EU trade deal. A trade deal that the SNP demanded is on the table, negotiated by the UK and the EU, supported by the President of the EU Commission and the European Council, formally approved by the EU ambassadors and will only come into effect if it is passed by the Parliament on these shores. And if this deal isn't voted for, the UK will leave without a deal because there is no other option. So let's see what Nicola Sturgeon thinks of no deal, shall we? Leaving the European Union with no deal would be devastating for the Scottish economy. It looks as if the UK could leave without a deal and that would be catastrophic. No deal should simply not be allowed to happen. 
The Prime Minister has set the UK on an almost inevitable course to no deal. This position that it has taken makes it very difficult to see how a deal can be struck with the EU, and I think that would be catastrophic for Scotland. In reality, he is pursuing... I'll wait till I finish reading this Nicola Sturgeon before I hear from this Nicola Sturgeon, so give me a moment. In reality, he's really pursuing a no-deal Brexit, and I think that is extremely dangerous for Scotland, indeed for the whole of the UK. We know the work that we've done on the impact that would have on jobs, on the economy, on our university, and on almost every aspect of society in Scotland. I think it incumbent on all of us who think that this is the wrong outcome to do everything we possibly can to block it. I, the Scottish Government, the SNP, will work with others to do everything we can to block his plan for a no-deal Brexit, which would do catastrophic harm from Scotland. And on Christmas Eve, less than a week ago, a deal is better than no deal. On you go. First uh, firstly, it's no wonder the European Commission president backs this. The EU got everything they wanted out of it. Secondly, no deal's not on the table today, as we will find out shortly. But in case Ruth Davidson is going to forget to talk about fishing, I wonder if she can tell us uh, how this came about. And I'm about to quote Mike Park, Chief Executive of the Scottish Whitefish Producers Association. And I'm quoting now. The deal we've been dealt gives us less fish than it did before. Can Ruth Davidson, having made all these promises to our fishermen, explain to us how exactly did that come about? Yeah. Ruth Davidson. Not only does Scotland's fishing fleet get more fish over time, we become an independent coastal state, we also get access to fish processors to market, which is exactly what she asked for. So let's be clear. She is voting, and not on this one, she is voting for no deal. And let's be clear what voting against this deal would do. To vote against this deal, I will, you wanted answers on what this is going to do for the UK, so I'm giving you them. To vote against this deal is to vote against zero trade, zero tariffs, to vote against deep security intelligence cooperation, never before offered by the EU in such an agreement. It's voting against participation in science, in research and space programmes. It is voting against agreements for airlines and hauliers. It is voting against securing access to our fishermen to market for their products. And it is voting against recognition for geographical indicators, like Scotch Witchley, like Stornoway Black Pudding and like our Smokies. So if the First Minister can tell us why she hates Arboro Smokies so much, she can go right ahead. Why do you hate the Smokies? Firstly, every single thing that Ruth Davidson has just listed there, we had as members of the European Union. All of that we are losing to get a worse deal uh, to, to try to retain some of it. But Ruth Davidson didn't respond. She said that uh, the fishermen have more fish now. I quoted the chief executive of the Scottish White Fish Producers Association. The deal we've been dealt gives us less fish than before. She still hasn't explained how that could possibly have come about from a Tory party that promised the world to our fishermen. Will she do so now? Ruth the Davidson. fishing fleet will build up. It has five years to build up our fishing fleet. We become an independent coastal state and, crucially, has access to market. Order. So how have we got here? How have we got here when Nicola Sturgeon said that she, that her party, her government would do anything, they would work with anyone to get a deal? And when a deal is presented, when it's backed by the EU, by Scotland's businesses, when it will stop the very no deal that she says she wants to avoid at all costs, what does she do? She orders her troops into the Westminster lobbies, carrying the no-deal Nicola banners high. Throughout this entire process, when it has come to the big calls, the SNP has asked one question of itself. Not what can be practically delivered, but how can Brexit be used 
to crank up grievance and promote the only thing that Nicola Sturgeon has ever cared about, independence. Today, they had the chance to show that they were prepared to change course, to expect the indisputable facts that the UK left the EU on the 31st of January and that tomorrow we leave the transitional arrangement. And today they had the chance to do the responsible thing and help lay a firm foundation for our new relationship with the EU. And instead, they're trying to take a sledgehammer to it. Instead, they're trying to scupper the only deal in town, carefully negotiated with the EU and unanimously approved by the ambassadors of all 27 EU member states and signed this morning by the presidents of the European Commission and the European Council. And their calculation is this. Crank up the outrage, the grievance and the division and hang the consequences. At the start of this month, Nicola Sturgeon said, I very much hope that we will see a breakthrough in these talks literally over the course of today. I think the UK government has to get real and really understand the implications for the NHS and across the economy if no deal is agreed. Get real. I think the First Minister needs to get real if she thinks she can stoke up grievance over no deal and then march her troops into the lobby today to vote for it without people seeing it for exactly what it is. Once again, the SNP's own political games coming first. Hypocrisy. You couldn't mark Nicola Sturgeon's neck with a blowtorch. Thank you. And I call Richard Leonard. To be Thank you, Presiding Officer. Let me be clear at the outset. The Future Relationship Agreement Bill is a bad deal for Scotland. And I do not even think that many of the people who voted leave on the 23rd of June 2016 voted for this. Even on the Brexiteers' own terms, under this agreement, people will not take back control, they will lose it. It does not mean more democracy or more transparency, it means less. Boris Johnson promised that the UK, in his words, will prosper mightily, even with a no-deal Brexit. But the stark assessment of the government he leads flatly contradicts this. His own government now say national income per head will be 5% lower than it would have been if we were remaining in the EU, that we will be poorer. That's what the Johnson government themselves estimate, and that's an average. The distribution of that drop in income will not be evenly spread, and I claim no special insight, but I predict it will be the poorest who will be hit the hardest. I hope I'm wrong, but that's what experience teaches us. For businesses and workers, even entire industries, in just over a day's time, there will be new barriers, new frictions, bundles of new paperwork, there will be new costs, and it will be damaging. And it is a measure of the irresponsibility of the Johnson government that it is prepared to leave businesses and working people barely a week to adjust to these significant complexities and these new arrangements. A week. That's irresponsible government under any circumstances. But in the circumstances of the biggest economic recession for 300 years, in the middle of an economic shock and rising unemployment caused by a global pandemic, it is an abdication of responsibility without modern parallel. So I have to say this. A vote against the proposition in Westminster today is to risk the chaos and damage of a no-deal outcome. And you can't say by voting against it, as SNP MPs will do today, that wasn't what we meant. That's what will happen, which is why Labour MPs will reluctantly vote for the deal because the alternative would be chaos. 
But there is no reason why even an initial ratification could not be subject to the scrutiny it merits in both our parliamentary democracy, including in this Parliament, the Welsh Senate and the Northern Ireland Assembly, but outside in the country too. There are other things that concern me, that ought to concern us all. Fewer than one in five large businesses in Scotland today are now Scottish-owned. 82% are not. Over half of all businesses' turnover in Scotland is now generated by businesses with their ultimate base outside Scotland. Over a third of all workers are employed in these firms. That's nearly 700,000 jobs. Yes, I'll take let's talk about the voice of business in Scotland. The head of the CBI in Scotland has said a negotiated deal between the UK and the EU brings with it a slew of immediate benefits. For starters, it will protect jobs under pressure from the pandemic via duty and quota-free trade. In short, the size of the prize is real. Ending years of division and delay by securing agreement with the EU will help our economy during the biggest challenge of our generation. Does he accept that? And what on earth is his party in the Scottish Parliament playing at when his colleagues down south are at least doing the responsible thing? Richard Leonard. We're not playing at anything. We're making a serious intervention in an important democratic debate, which is about the future of devolution, about the future of the Scottish economy and about the future of jobs and people's livelihoods. It's much higher. It's much higher that, uh, that exposure to internal investment and therefore internal potential disinvestment than other parts of the UK. And here we have in this treaty, which the Conservative Party sign and support, that guarantees the freedom of movement of capital, but does not guarantee the freedom of movement of people. In fact, when it comes to people, it is words like temporary, it is words like business visitors, it is independent professionals, and so an abrupt end to the opportunities to live and work across the continent for people. Erasmus is gone, ending opportunities for students to work and study across the continent. The commitments on labour, and environmental standards are weak and considerably weaker than even the optimists expected. So we will support the motion today, just as we hope others will back our amendment. For us, the priority is dealing with these economic shocks, not detonating more, which the SNP has in mind. It is dealing with the national emergency before us in a spirit of cooperation and renewed determination. It is to seek to get powers repatriated from Europe to this Parliament, like on employment law, health and safety, public procurement. That is the best way to defend democracy, and that is the best way to stand up for Scotland. Thank you, and I call on Patrick Harvey to be followed by Willie Rennie. This is a day of broken promises, but then it could never have been anything else. UK voters were promised all the benefits of EU membership and none of the costs. Today, we see xenophobic British nationalists cheering as new barriers of bureaucracy are erected, as hard-won standards which protect us at work, in what we eat, and even in the air we breathe are put at risk, and as our family of nations is presented as rivals at a time when the world needs international cooperation more than ever. But in many ways, it's still something the Brexiteers campaigned for and did deliver which pains me the most, the end of free movement. It was Ruth Davison who, after the Brexit vote, said we should absolutely stay in the single market. 
And it's Ruth Davison who has now accepted a peerage from that same hard-right populist Boris Johnson so that she never needs to face democratic accountability again. Thank you, I call Willie Rennie. Thank you, President Officer. This debate needs a bit of realism. This deal is going through. It is going through because Boris Johnson has an 80-seat majority. He has his Eurosceptics on board, and even the bulk of the Labour Party is backing it. So no deal has finally been taken off the table. But just because we accept Brexit is happening, that there is a deal, and that it is going through, does not mean we have to like it. We are realistic, but we won't swallow our deep reservations about Brexit, and especially this deal. In no way is anyone compelled to vote for something that they think will be bad for this country. And after all the Brexit chaos this Conservative government has inflicted on millions of people for years, and after the Scottish Conservatives promised they would never back a deal that gave separate treatment to Northern Ireland, that party is in no position to lecture anyone about Brexit today. There should be no surprise that Liberal Democrats can't support the Conservatives on Brexit today because our support for Europe has been resolute for decades. From the Liberals, no. From the Liberals' support for yes in the 75 referendum, the Gang of Four in the 80s, Paddy Ashdown bailing out John Major to support the Maastricht Treaty in the 90s, to our enthusiastic support for Remain in 2016, and our advocacy for a people's vote for the last four years. And so we have said goodbye to the year 2020, the year of ABC, Alec, Brexit, Covid. Alec Salmond, cleared of all charges at the High Court in Edinburgh. We'll hear more from the former First Minister in the coming weeks. Brexit, it should have been the story of the year, but it will be the story for years to come. COVID. We're getting through it together. An unprecedented pandemic that has touched us all. Let's hope for a better year ahead and perhaps wish we become kinder to each other along the way. Before we go, and with thanks to the actor and comedian Jenny Godley, I bring you the First Minister's New Year message just for you. Jenny has played a vital role keeping us perked up over the past year. Even Nicola Sturgeon has retweeted Jenny's impersonation of uh, Nicola Sturgeon. It's a caricature voice, but you just get the sense our First Minister actually loves it. Well, the new year's going to be different. It's not going to be the same hug my we've had every single year. You know how the Haley, the White Heather Club and folk and tartan and kilts and big dresses come in and dance all the way around your coffee table and eat your sausage rolls? That won't be happening this year. We don't want any first footers either. You know how some fella he turns up you don't know with a kilt and a black bun? That can't happen either. I'm just saying the pandemic's out there. Don't let COVID-19 be your first foot or I'll stick my toe up the crack of your bahookie. We're all trying to stay safe. Me and Peter are going to stay in and play Scrabble. I usually beat him. He usually gets upset. But, you know, that's 2020. Happy New Year, everybody. I think no other country in the world would get away with that. 